Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 27 of the Clarinet Podcast. Today's guest is Francois Uhl, who we have back to discuss extended techniques exclusively. This episode was brought to you by Diderio Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Diderio is redefining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with technology built from the ground up. By using the world's most innovative techniques to deliver consistently what was once made variable by hand, Diderio ensures excellence right out of the box is standard, not a surprise. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Diderio Woodwinds, visit diderio.com woodwinds. Welcome to part two in a two-part series with Francois Uhl. Before we get started with today's episode, I'd like to play a quick excerpt of Francois performing a piece with an extended technique where he actually plays two clarinets at the same time. I hope you enjoy this excerpt and enjoy the interview. Hi, Francois, and welcome back to the Clarinet Podcast to discuss extended techniques for the clarinet today. Hi, how you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. All right. So uh, we talked the other day, we kind of went over your recording career and uh, some of your musical uh, experiences, including recording some CDs that you've done. And on some of the CDs that you've recorded and in some of your live performance, you have done a great job of extended techniques. And this is something I've kind of broached the subject of with some other guests like Lori Friedman and uh, I believe Catherine Ladano, but we've never really kind of gotten inside the subject and talked about it a little bit. Um, uh-huh. Before we go into it too far, I know that you're kind of opposed to the term extended techniques. Why is that? Uh, I'm, I'm not opposed to it. It's just the, the, the notion of extended technique implies um, uh, difficult to listen uh, things, you know, <laughs> sounds and, <laughs> yeah. and whatnot. And also, um, it also implies, um, difficult to, to master type of stuff. And it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, I don't think that any extended technique is, is more complicated than your normal clarinet practicing of scales and arpeggios and, and articulation and whatnot. Um, so th- th- there's a bit of a, a demystifying to do in terms of what extended techniques are and, and, and how they work on the instrument. Um, my, my whole approach basically now when I, when I give clinics or workshops or master classes or lessons and we talk about multiphonics, I take it from the basic physics of the instrument up. Um, mm-hmm. So when you squeak, a squeak is, is a form of extended technique. It's just it just kind of happens that your embouchure and uh, the the cavity was just placed in the wrong 
it positioned in the wrong place to create the tone that you wanted and you end up with something else, an accident. That's so um, funny you say that because Lori and I were talking actually about the value of teaching kids to squeak in order to get the high notes. Absolutely, absolutely. And and, and for, for, from there on, I mean, Lori and I have always very uh, agreed in terms of uh, the, those, you know, exploring those ideas and why does that happen? And it's an opportunity to learn about proper embouchure. Um and, uh, you know, and again, just saying that, that proper embouchure, there's no such thing as a proper embouchure. Uh, it's just a, an embouchure should be a very plastic thing, uh, mm-hmm. elastic thing, I should say, not plastic. Um, because you need your embouchure to adjust to the register that you're playing it, to the type of articulation, the type of colors that you want. And when you play a squeak, uh, there's just a certain configuration of the embouchure and the air pressure and everything that causes that to happen. The more you learn about how that happens, the more you learn about the embouchure and its cause and effect. So maybe um, saying that the, you know, I said you were opposed to it. Maybe that was kind of saying <laughs> it wrong. But maybe maybe what I mean is that like you view that the extended techniques should be sort of part of the more normal repertoire. And that by, by calling them extended techniques, it kind of scares people away from trying them or, or they somehow think that they don't have to learn them to play. Yeah. Well, you know, a single tanging is an extended technique, <laughs> you know, <laughs> some yeah, people in practice a way. single technique to a point where they can play it at one fifty six a quarter note, uh, you know, and, and, and play 16th note at that tempo. That's an extended technique. It's outside of their comfort zone. So well, in speak. a way, everything was kind of invented and these are just new things that are being invented. There you go. And, or they were always there, but now they've entered the, the, the repertoire. They've, ent- they've entered the canon of, uh, of great clarinet repertoire. So what I, what I try to do in my teaching with my beginner students is that I try to introduce all those practices, circular breathing, slap tonguing, uh, double tonguing, triple tonguing, all that stuff from the get-go, and multiphonic fingerings, quarter-tone fingerings, so that the student, rather than waiting for 10 years and being terrified after 10 years of practicing standard repertoire to go into extended territory, and and then they're freaked out and they're so locked into a mode of playing that goes against the idea of exploration and 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 plasticity um, that they're they're finding it difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you start a student from the get go about learning uh, the different ways of shaping the embouchure and using the air to create different types of sounds on the instrument, then fast forward 10 years, they've already covered all that at the same time as they covered their space, uh, their scales and arpeggios and everything else that they need to know, uh, where there's no fear anymore and there's no demystification to be done and no big quantum leap uh, to be done because it was instilled from the get-go. Yeah, I think there's there's actually a lot of band pieces that are working on this kind of thing now for students. I mean, the kids actually will take their clarinet apart and play. There's a piece yeah. called Rats, Bats, and Spiders where they basically just honk on the mouthpiece to make a scary sound. And yeah. uh, you'd be thrilled. I don't know if you had a chance to look through the new clarinet syllabus for the RCM, but uh, they are introducing this sort of idea as early as level two now. So wonderful. There's actually no. there's a piece called Ode to the Bad Read or something like that, and the, the kid has to honk a couple times. And then there's multiphonics at a grade four piece, which I found kind of surprising, but that's it's amazing. Not rocket science, you know. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's all there. And, uh, you know, I mean, Bill Smith, uh, we talked about him a little bit yesterday, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when he's introduced the demi-clarinets and playing two clarinets at once, uh, uh, a lot of people were going like, oh, he's such a pioneer and a crazy guy and experimenting and everything. Uh, but, you know, like I said, it, it's all based on certain trend traditions that he inspired in himself to uh to build a new sort of clarinet repertoire based on those you know what's available at hand right so you've actually segued into my next question um for those who don't know william o smith or bill smith is someone who has experimented heavily with playing both halves of the clarinet with two mouthpieces at the same time (laughs) so you kind of take your mouthpiece and you put it into the lower uh section of the clarinet Mm-hmm. And uh, in addition to the upper one, you know, I have to admit, this is something I haven't tried. And there's no excuse. I've got like 10 mouthpieces around. Um, <laughs> w- w- what palette does that open up for people, do you think? Well, uh, it's it's certainly, first of all, you're going to get a different type of tone, especially if you're playing the uh, the left hand with the, uh, the upper part of the clarinet uh, with just a half, uh, the top half. Uh, you're going to get a, a sound that's much closer to sort of like a Macedonian type of uh, reed instrument. Uh, and you get um, microtonal uh, scales out of it. And the same thing with the low register, but not as much mm-hmm. uh, in the right hand. So the relationship between the left hand and the right hand are, are you know, they'll be more or less uh, in tune, or you can play them if you play what would be a normal low C uh, on, a, on the top half of the clarinet, and you play um, a, 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 an F on the lower part of the clarinet, you're actually going to get uh, a unison um, a C on the instrument, a concert B flat. And, wow. But they're, not, they're about um, an eighth of a tone apart. So you get this magnificent uh, friction and beats that that happen in the sound. It's sort of like a wah 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 and uh, type of sound. And then you can work the embouchure with the two mouthpieces to play that either play in and out of tune of it, and use your fingers also to control the the pitch. And uh, so already right there, there's so many possibilities. And, and that's, that's a, the, 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 the beats that you get between the uh, out of tuneness. Uh, it becomes a very rich, very expressive uh, tool um, for composing. And Bill certainly explored that a lot, you know. Uh, but then again, uh, all the stuff really has to do with um, uh, my, my good friend Benoit uh, Delbecq called an ear attitude. Um, so if you listen to things and you think in terms of with a, a, a critical traditional mind, you're going to go, oh, my God, it's out of tune. It's horrible. Yeah. But if you li- listen to it from a creative standpoint, it was like, wow, what can I do with this? How can I explore this to get to yield some expression and maybe find some beauty in it? Then it opens up a, a whole well of possibilities that are really worth exploring. And, you know, when I show those tricks to my beginner students, um, that's what they practice the most because it's so much fun and they become so good at it uh, that, you know, they made me feel like, wow, I should have done that when I was eight years old. But nobody told me that I was I didn't have license to do it. You know, I find the license so interesting because even, um, you know, professional players or more mature players, whatever 
if that's the right word. Um, I think they often feel that they've worked so hard on kind of developing a burnished tone that can be suitable to an orchestra or something like that. But then, you know, uh -huh. you, you ask them to make these kind of sounds and, and they're sort of confused because on the surface, though, like it does to them sound, maybe it's just their ear attitude, but it does sound kind of bad to them. So what, yeah. what would you say to them? Like, how do you, is it going to ruin their technique to make these sounds or? Mm -hmm. Well, what I tell them is that it's going to improve and only solidify their convictions as to what is a proper ambition. Mm. Um, because um, even the most advanced students, uh, you know, and even some professional players, they've always played with a certain type of tone, like you were mentioning. Um, but they, they have some issues with their ambition. They say, oh, I can't tongue at a certain tempo. I have a real hard time with the Mendelssohn uh, excerpts. Uh, or I have a hard time playing in the altissimo register, playing in tune and controlling in, in the second movement of the Stravinsky uh, three pieces. And I say, okay, well, let's look at your embouchure. Let's see how you're supporting your air up there and how you're articulating. And it usually comes down to embouchure plasticity. And if they don't have that, they have a set way of playing things. There's a lot of repertoire they're not able to do. They, if they take uh, the Seven Brightnesses by Peter Maxwell Davies, they are, there's no way they're going to play uh, the Altissimo Register uh, uh, excerpts uh, from that piece. Mm -hmm. um, but if they explore the embouchure and working on overtones and learning um, the proper fingerings for the proper overtone results, they're going to realize quickly that with a minute little adjustment, they actually can extend their range by at least a fourth or a fifth without really hurting anything and actually by relaxing even more. Um, and and I, I mean, I speak from experience, uh, from teaching students about extended altissimo and, and tonguing up there. Uh, and uh, the results um, happen very instinctively, but also very, very quickly. Um, so all this, this uh, resistance to modify the embouchure to get different results, um, it, it, once you get over that fear and you get into the, that, that sort of sh paradigm shift almost for some players, um, the look in their, in their eyes is phenomenal. <laughs> when yeah. they get something that they've never been able to do before and I go, okay, now let's go back to Mozart and play a little bit of the second movement of the Mozart. And they start playing and they realize that they're so much more relaxed playing it. Their embouchure relaxes, opens up, the tone opens up, and they're getting better results than they've had ever before. Well, so, yeah, I think know, we're also broaching on the subject yesterday that we touched on, which was sort of the subjectivity of appropriate tone colors, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and sounds. And we were sort of saying how, you know, in orchestral playing, there, there's this certain way. And if you don't fit that way, then you yeah. kind of, you know, can't do that. But but um... I'll, I'll tell you a, a really neat uh, anecdote uh, regarding that, uh, uh, this uh, aspect of proper tone and everything, and also what the composers want, you know. Um, I mean, historically speaking, we, we don't have Mozart and Brahms to talk to us about how to play their pieces anymore. Uh, but when you play Xenakis, uh, or when I played Xenakis in the 80s, uh, Xenakis was there to tell me what he needed. And I was playing contrabass clarinet in this ensemble in Banff, and Robert Aitken was conducting, and Xenakis was there. We were having a mini Xenakis festival for him. And there was a grayed-out notation thing at the bottom of the bass clef for the, for the contrabass clarinet. 
with no specific pitch, just a grayed out box that, that spanned the length of the, the staff. So being a good student, I raised my hand and I asked uh, uh, Mr. Xenakis, you know, like, what would you like me to do there? And, uh, and Robert Aitken was a bit baffled, too. So we're looking at him and he says, well, I want a really ugly sound. <laughs> and we go. So I look at Robert and I say, "Okay, I can do ugly." And Robert is looking at me like, "Okay, but don't get carried away." You know, <laughs> he was really worried that I was going to wreck the balance <laughs> of the ensemble and everything. So we start the piece, and I play sort of a semi-ugly low split tone, and uh, adding multiphonics and 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 very kind of rumbling. Uh, 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 you know, like everything that you wouldn't want the contrabass clarinet to do. Mm-hmm. I was trying to do. And we finished the rehearsal, and, and Robert is looking at me going like, I'm not sure if that's working, Frankie. You've you know, got to be careful over there. And, and Zanakis comes up, and he says, that, that, that was okay, but I want more ugly. <laughs> and, uh, and Robert is just terrified. And I'm like, okay, I'll give him more ugly. So next rehearsal, I'm blowing until I'm red in the face, and I'm giving all this really ugly sound and everything. And every rehearsal, at the end of the rehearsal, Zanakis would come up and say, that contrabass clarinet part has to be more ugly. And um, anyway, so we get to the performance, and I said, okay, well, now I don't have Robert to tell me anything now. Anything can happen. I, I'm just going to give him the, the worst, ugliest sound I can possibly make. I'm going to blow my face off, and it's going to be what it is. And if Robert's mad at me, that's the way it is. But I'm going to go with the composer in this one. And I played my face off, and it was the ugliest thing you've ever heard. <laughs> and Robert Aiken is conducting and looking at me like, oh, you you got me. This is really bad. Like, the, you're <laughs> totally wrecking the piece. And Zanakis walked up to us after with beaming face going out. He said, now, that was ugly. <laughs> well, <laughs> have you heard that old saying? It's like, it's always easier to ask, uh, or sorry, it's always easier to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That sounds uh, but, like a you know, I was I was caught between a stone and a hard place, right? And, yeah. Uh, but, you know, and what I got out of it is that I really learned how to do a proper low guttural multiphonic with a lot of grunting and, the, and, the, and with a contrabass clarinet. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I probably uh, could corner the contrabass clarinet ugly sound market with that one. Uh, I became a specialist within a week. <laughs> yeah, and you know, if you think about the expression of like musical emotions too, I think that the film industry really has this nailed down. But you know, you're watching a horror movie, you're not necessarily going to want to use the same sort of sounds as in some sort of love story to convey no. different emotions that you know maybe don't exist. Uh, within that sort of nice music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so. You know, w- when we were talking about Alan Hacker, he was um, uh, probably the first one back in 1984 to tell me, you know, you got to play with your heart um, and you got to do whatever the music requires. And he was talking about a poetic quality in the playing um, that, uh, that hints at having a whole range of sounds and colors rather than just playing in a very sort of like locked, uh, aesthetic, um, you know, uh, aesthetical approach. And I'm finding more and more that composers want uh, a, a quality of sound that is much more in the belly, uh, much more raw uh, than uh, what we're trained to do, uh, traditionally speaking. 
Um, so if you don't explore um, all this range of possibility and master uh, a certain range of, of, of tones and sounds, uh, you're not going to be able to give to the composer what uh, an effect is, is required to get the job done. And when you were talking yesterday about my versatility and my ability to, to park myself in a lot of different situations musically, um, it stems out of having done the work. Uh, it's not like I show up at a session and somebody says, I want this type of sound. I actually suggest a range of possibilities that I think would fit the music. Mm -hmm. And when we hit on one uh, that works, uh, everybody in the room knows, ah, oh, that is the sound that we were looking for. How did you do that? And then, then you, you know that you've got them and you'll get hired again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. So I actually just want to, before we completely move on from the double clarinets, um, I just wanted to ask, like, let's say I'm intrigued by this, as many listeners may be, and I want to try it this afternoon. Uh, what do I, you know, how do I get started with my embouchures? <laughs> is it plural yeah. now, the embouchures, or is it still? <laughs> uh, the, the, it's one embouchure, but it's, it's certainly, a, uh, uh, well, you know, you just got to do it by trial and error. Uh, there's no, there's no textbook on it. Uh, oh, so no one's really or, devised like a quote proper method for it at this point. I, I don't think so. You know, uh, I know there's a number of people who do it, but, um, the way I started off was like, just let's see what happens, you know? And, um, and eventually, uh, what I found out was that depending on, on the angle, that you place the two instruments, you're going to get one instrument that speaks more than the other. So mm. you really got to play with the angle and getting used to having the reed sitting on the other side, uh, on the left and right side of center and to try to stay relaxed and not try to bite into, um, uh, into the setup. You know, it takes a, maybe a little bit more flexibility than a normal embouchure for sure. Um, and, and key is also to find the right strength of reeds. Uh, it's probably a good idea to start practicing this with very soft reeds, even though you're not going to get the kind of tone that you want, at least you're going to get a response and you're going to learn how, how to control the dynamics of each instrument and, and also, um, you know, how to get, uh, from trial and error, a proper sort of position that doesn't leak too much air. Uh, because you've got a, an opening uh, where your normal center, uh, where the reed would, would sit normally, that, that center is open if you don't have the right position of left and right, you know, yeah. uh, with the two uh, mouthpieces. So you have to exper experiment for quite a while before you get a proper seal. And, um, and to tell you the truth, I've never really taken close-up pictures to see how I actually do it. But I, I play with no air leak uh, whatsoever uh, in the best of situations, mind you, um, mm. with the proper reads, uh, the proper read setup and the proper angle. Uh, you can actually get a perfect seal where you get just beautiful, pure clarinet tone. Uh, so it's trial and error and practicing it, but not giving up. The other advice that I would give to anybody who wants to do this is to start with an A clarinet and a B flat clarinet instead of the demi clarinets. Oh. Uh, because then you can play a C sharp on the, on, on the A clarinet and a C on the, on the B flat clarinet. And it, you can play them if they're tuned to 440. Uh, you can actually start by practicing uh, tuning uh, the two instruments depending on the angle and the and lip pressure, you can actually play uh, perfect unison 
with a B flat and an A clarinet. Uh, so it's a lot easier and much more pleasant uh, to practice that way because you can rest the bells on your legs as well, so you don't have the weight of the instruments uh, on your wrist and thumbs. Um, and, uh, and you can practice for a little bit longer. That's very cool. I don't know why I didn't think of that. That would be, you know, and for those people who are concerned about it potentially sounding quote bad, this is some way to get some more tonal approachable harmonies perhaps. Um, totally. Uh, you can practice thirds, fifths, uh, you, you, you know, and then once, once you develop a, an ability to control the relationship between the B flat and the A, then you can uh also experiment with a b flat and an e flat clarinet where you get these beautiful fourths and fifths um mm. and and you practice in a lower range until you're comfortable with it before you move on to the register keys and and the upper octaves yeah that sounds very cool actually I, th I think the neatest thing about this is that it does open up a second sort of voice for clarinet players which we don't normally have but of course we can also sing into our instruments uh, what's your thoughts on that and, and how people can get started with it Ah, just by doing it. <laughs> um, you know, it, there was an, an incredible back pressure that occurs when you uh, when you sing and uh, and play into the instrument. Um, so you have to experiment with finding a happy medium between uh, having a proper embouchure and using your your throat to you know and your vocal cords to uh, to get a sound. I've never been a big fan of of this. Uh, of that technique, uh, even though there's some pieces like Apergis uh, uh, 200 measures for solo clarinet, where a lot of it is voice uh, vocalizations and and air noises that you have to do, as as well as playing subtones on the on the clarinet. But it's all very gentle, pianissimo stuff. Um, that's a great piece of repertoire if you want to explore that that idea and see how he actually notates everything uh it's sort of sort of a reference piece for that type of practice but i've never been a really big fan of it i find that the the end results um are um there, there's certainly a limitation to it um when i improvise i'll use my vocal cords quite a bit when i want to get sort of a more aggressive uh rolling tone almost um and that coupled with sort of this uh, rumbling double tonguing that I do, uh, you get sort of an effect that sounds a little bit like when Anthony Braxton plays the clarinet. Um, you know, he's an alto sax player primarily, but he's actually a pretty fine clarinet player too. And, but he gets a sound on the clarinet doing the stuff that I've that is very haunting and, and very powerful. Um, John Carter. Uh, who, who was also a big influence of mine, uh, probably the only uh, 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 black American clarinet player who introduced the clarinet, uh, brought the clarinet up to date in the late 60s. Uh, he, was, uh, he grew up in Kansas, so he, he, he was uh, uh, in, in Kansas City, and he, he knew, um, uh, he knew uh, Ornette Coleman and played with Ornette Coleman but he, he he was playing he was a doubler but later on in life in the late 60s he he started playing strictly clarinet uh i, I mean in the uh, in the 80s and he's a fabulous clarinet player and he would do this vocalization as he would circular breathe on the clarinet and it's the most beautiful thing you've ever heard there's a piece if you could track it down it's called uh, on a country road and it's a, it's a master class in singing and playing the clarinet uh, uh together yeah, so there's lots of ways that, I mean, you on your website, you actually have, oh, I think you listed 14 extended techniques or something like that, and 
Of course, mm-hmm. there's many more than that. But let's oh yeah, let's sort of use this as a chance to segue into your clarinet DNA project. What's that all about? Okay, well, the DNA project. Uh, the name is a bit. It's a it's a working title because there's no such thing as DNA. But um, when you think of uh, the instrument per se, you know, we, most of the methods and the technique books that exist for the instrument uh, are all based on monophonic um, approaches, you know, uh, melodic approaches. So I'm talking about close a and, uh, all the traditional, uh, literature on clarinet technique and up and up to the point when, um, we got the, the new directions for clarinet by, uh, uh, Phil Rayfeld, uh, where, and, and Bill Smith's, uh, cue cards on duotones. So the way that those are organized and unfortunately, there's a lot of fingerings there that that are wrong. Um, I mean, the fingerings are okay, but the notes that that the resulting tones and multiphonics that Phil Rayfeld notated uh, worked on a certain model of instrument with a certain setup with a certain read. As soon as you veer away from that setup, which is never mentioned really in the book, uh, you get different results. Hmm. So it's very it's a very misleading document. And it's organized, and, and there's some description of what the fingerings do, but they're not organized by classes of types of sound that result from the, mul- the multiphonic fingerings that he has listed. Um, so that, that, in my relationship to composers who have used that document as a reference for comp- composing pieces for clarinet, um, it was, there was always been a sort of a wrestling match between a composer and me to explain that while some of these fingerings are not effective for the context that they're written in, um, you'll have like, for example, a really gentle, beautiful texture, and all of a sudden he's asking you to play this multiphonic, so I want those tones very quiet, and blah, blah, blah. And you try it, and you know that it's going to be a rolling, very aggressive multiphonic that totally doesn't fit the context, and there's no way to do it, uh, uh, to tone it down to fit uh, the profile of the material. Mm-hmm. Uh, the piece that it's written in. Um, so I would suggest alternative and things that would be better suited for the music. And, you know, then the collaborative effort, if you have an open-minded composer, you find solutions. Um, but sometimes composers don't want to change their point of view. And they say, no, you should be able to do it. And then you go, well, you know, I could, but maybe I'll pass on that piece because, it's not satisfying to me as a clarinet player, uh, as a performer. So the project then you're trying to, you're trying to sort of state all the different ways that fingerings can be done in. Is it, yes. So it's, is it annotated then, kind of like the written hour? To- totally, and in much greater detail, and it's going to have sound files, spectral analysis, so images of what's happening in the spectral image, and also video of me demonstrating how I'm doing it. You know, with the type of embouchure and type of fingering position and everything. So it's quite detailed. And uh, of course, it's without research assistance, it's taking a long time to, to map it out. But the clarinet DNA, at, at, and the, the first motivation that I had was to map out every possible fingering permutations on the instrument. But instead of starting from uh, a diatonic system and then working into mo- quarter tones and eighths of tones and then multiphonics, I decided I would work at it from uh, a venting approach. Um, so 
the main vent fingering that we have for the clarinet that everybody uses is the register key. Mm -hmm. uh, when you play a low E and you open the register key, you get a 12. Well, that's the 12 is the, is a vent fingering of the low E. So if you use this sort of terminology and you, extra, you, you extrapolate that to what happens when I play a low E, but instead of using the register key as a vent fingering, I'll open uh, the, um, uh, the, the ring finger of the left hand, for example, and that's going to be my venting hole instead of the register key. Obviously, the results are going to be very different. Uh, you're not going to get a 12. You're going to get something else. And, 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 and the clarinet is going to react physically in different ways. And if you play it very, very gently, uh, you'll get some kind of subtonish type of sounds. If you blow a little harder, you'll get overtones. If you, blow, if you give, adjust the pressure, you might get more than one pitch at a time, which we call a multiphonic. So my approach to clarinet DNA is to work my way up from a completely closed tube to a completely opened tube with all the fingerings that are physically possible uh, by playing on a clarinet that is covered with keys. Um, so if you were to play all the open holes of the clarinet, um, that is a fingering that doesn't exist in the clarinet books, traditionally speaking. Because you have to open all the trill keys, all the fork thing, all the fork keys. Every key that is closing a hole has to be opened in order to get all the holes of, of the instrument, all the tube completely open, right? Yeah. So right there, that's a new fingering that nobody has ever used. Um, so we're and what I'm trying to do is cover everything from a completely closed tube to a completely open tube and see what happens and line them up and 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 document them. And uh, by my estimate, there's over 4,000 uh, of those fingerings. Wow. Um, uh, you know, when, because you're going to be working with one vent hole. Uh, so if you open, if you close the, the E and then you open any uh, hole uh, one at a time on the clarinet um, and then close it back and open another one, uh, you've got you know, technically on an 18 key clarinet, well, you, you have all kinds of whole permutations that are not traditional fingerings that are going to give you different results. And so that's where the DNA part of it, it's all part of the fabric of the instrument, uh, the way it is built now. A days, right? I'm talking about the modern. Well, yeah, it's such that. a such a discovery process. There's this video on YouTube actually where they they invented some sort of gigantic new sort of bassoon thing. <laughs> I'll have to send you the video. <laughs> Maybe I'll I'll post it in the show notes. That but, would be great. But I'd during the that. during the video though, the guy said something really interesting, which sort of caught me off guard. He said uh, they asked him what the highest note was, and he said, "Well, the one that I've discovered is this." And then he played it, and I was like, "That's so interesting! Like he's discovering the notes." Yeah. <laughs> For yeah. the first time, you know, and yeah. there might be more notes in there, but he hasn't found out how to get them yet. Yeah. And it, yeah. Was, it was so sort of interesting. Definitely. You could almost well, call the whole thing the clarinet genome project, isn't that? When well, they... <laughs> that would probably be more accurate. You know, I like DNA. It's easy to remember. Genome is yeah. very good. And uh, uh, it's got some parallel to Anthony Braxton because he actually wrote a piece called the Sonic Genome Project. Uh, which was a, a piece for community based ensembles that's fantastic. It's huge scores. Um, but anyway, 
the Clarinet DNA project, when you think about it, once you've mapped out all the possible fingerings of, on the instrument and the resulting pitches, you, um, you should end up with a very, very clear picture of all the possibilities uh, that are available to you as a clarinet player. You know, I always laugh when I see um, method books uh, where they map out all the possible fingerings for a high G, uh, an altissimo G, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the G is a very flexible note, so the, there's actually a lot of uh, overtone fingerings on the clarinet that has a G in common. Um, by mapping out all the fingering possibilities, I know that I would have uh, a, a, a complete list of, of all the things that would have a, a harmonic uh, G, uh, it's G5, or I think, or G6 in common uh, on the instrument. So having that at your disposal, uh, you could go to any piece of repertoire. Um, you, know, uh, you could look at the, the Copeland Concerto, and you would have about a list of probably 25, 30 fingerings to play those high Gs, yeah. as opposed to the one or two that your teacher taught you that you've always practiced, that I've always never really felt right, uh, maybe for your instrument. But then if you go from a LeBlanc to a Selmer to a Buffet, uh, if you play a Divine or if you play a Tosca, you're going to get different Gs on all of them. Um, and, but with having that list of fingerings, you could find a one that would work the best. I I have a fingering for G that I like to use that uh, on other clarinets, I know it's not in tune. I know it doesn't work, but you know what? I, for some reason, it just works and it speaks nicely. So I use it quite regularly. And yeah. one, time, one time someone said to me like, well, you can't use that fingering. And I was like, well, why? It's right on the tuner. It, it sounds, yeah. sounds nice. I mean, yeah. what's the problem? So Well, this is a very good example, Sean, of the what I talked uh, about, the, this sort of like... Um, uh, clarinet um, uh, academia or dogma that, that locks the clarinet into one mode of playing is this attitude of, oh, you can't do that, that's wrong, or that's the wrong tempo for the, the second movement of Stravinsky three pieces, or that's not how you should play it rhythmically. That's it's vibrato. All based, <laughs> it, it's all based on, yeah, really, it's, it's all based on scholarship, right? Yeah. And I, re, I respect that. I have extreme amounts of respect for people who have done their due diligence and, and research, but it stops at that point when they tell me that, oh, you can't do it this way. That's the wrong way to do it. But if it sounds good, why is it wrong? Um, so I try as much as possible to, to if, if, if they can prove me wrong that there is a better fingering than the one that I'm using, I will happily switch over to their idea and adopt it and make a note of it uh, and then pass that on to my students. Um, however, if I find, if I find something that is off the beaten path that works better, then I make a note of that and I pass it on because it's, it's just as vibrant and, and, and important to do that, you know, uh, rather than locking myself into one mode of of thinking. Uh, and I've made that mistake many times of playing a piece a certain way and somebody would come along and say, well, you know, it's. It sounds good, but have you ever considered this other way? And then I hear them do it, and I go, dang, why? how come I've never thought of it that way? It's so much better. Then I will make that adjustment, right? And that's part of this sort of plasticity, uh, this sort of ear attitude that I'm talking about where, well, you know, there's no such thing as a, as a, as a bad student. There's, there's, the, the, 
but there are some students who are very set in their ways and they think that that they, they have a way of thinking that well one of my teachers taught me to do it this way and that's the way i want to do it and and that's where i get frustrated because you know that with the amount of information that 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 you have as an as a you know master clarinet player uh if you could convey that that information with an open-minded sort of approach and spirit um that student could improve a great deal or stumble upon some things that you and uh him her it (laughs) uh, never thought could be possible right and that's how you become a, a better player absolutely well, thanks so much for coming on to talk about this today, Francois. And I think that I, I love the concept of uh, the ear attitude. If, if people could take away just one thing from today's chat about extended techniques, what, what do you hope that would be? Well, it would be just that, uh, an, an idea of having the license to experiment. And, 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 and my point of view with extended technique is it's all very constructive. It's all uh, aim at improving um, and building on the foundations that you've worked so hard to establish. Uh, it doesn't go against that. It only enhances and gets better, which is why we called it extended technique. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So for those listening, um, I do encourage you to go back and check out the episode where we discuss Francois's recordings. And uh, also, let me know what you thought about this episode, sort of a shorter, more focused chat. And if you do have any questions, I would like to open the floor up and invite you to post in the comments or leave a voicemail on the website. And maybe we can even have Francois back for a third time to address some of those. Would you be willing to do that? I'd be thrilled. Absolutely. So yeah, let's get a dialogue going. Post in the comments there what you think about sort of this discussion, changing your ear attitude. And uh, if you have any questions specifically about other techniques we didn't touch on, like flutter tonguing or, you know, 13 or 14 others that can probably be be labeled, that would be great. Um, Francois, where can we find you online for those who maybe haven't checked out the other episode yet? Yes, at uh, Uh And also, if you go to YouTube, you can see uh, some short videos. They're a bit outdated and a bit fuzzy, uh, but the sound is very good, and you can hear me doing a lot of what we've talked about so far. Yeah, and I'll link to as many of those as I can in the show notes. So, Great. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Francois. Always a pleasure. That's all for today's episode of the Clarinet.com podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to learn more, please see www.clarinet.com and search episode 27 in the search bar. If you have a listener question for Francois, click on Leave Voicemail, or you can fill out the contact form and send your question directly. This episode was brought to you by Dario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Dario is redefining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with technology built from the ground up. By using the world's most innovative techniques to deliver consistently what was once made variable by hand, Diderio ensures excellence right out of the box as standard, not a surprise. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Diderio Woodwinds, visit diderio.com woodwinds.